Chapter 20 Beauty Today and Yesterday As the year 1946 gradually grew older and the technical difficulties of shortages and substitutes began to recede, I found a new surging of my creative powers. Perhaps it was partly due to the excitement of returning to the work I loved after so many years of idleness and frustration. Partly it was due to the fruits of the research of those war years, when I had spent so many hours working out new applications of old materials and visualising their uses in new styles and designs. At any rate, the rewards of my labours were not long in arriving. In the middle of 1947, I received a telegram from the Dallas, Texas store of Neiman Marcus, who had been distributors of my shoes for many years, to tell me that in company with Christian Dior of Paris, Norman Hartnell of London and Irene of Hollywood, I had been awarded the Neiman Marcus plaque for Distinguished Services to Fashion for 1947. The plaques, the Oscars of fashion designing, are awarded annually and Dior, Hartnell and I were the first non-Americans to win them. One stipulation in the granting of the plaques was that the recipients must attend the presentations in person to receive the plaques from Mr. Stanley Marcus. And so, in the autumn of that year, I sailed to the United States in the Queen Elizabeth. Also on board was Christian Dior, and our first meeting had a curious sequel. I do not know whether Dior knew of my work before he read it in the list of awards, but I must confess that until that moment, he was not even a name to me. I do not read fashion news. We therefore met on the Queen Elizabeth not only as strangers to each other, but strangers in our modes of thought and work. We spent a good deal of time at our first meeting in a good-natured grumble at the incidental disadvantages of winning an international prize. The stipulation that we attend in person, Hartnell escaped because I understand he was busy preparing the designs of Princess Elizabeth's trousseau, meant that we had been forced to tear ourselves away from our businesses when we could ill afford the time. It had also meant hard work creating new styles to present at the mannequin parade, which was a feature of the ceremony. Dior confessed that he had completed his dresses only a few days before he sailed. My shoes had not been finished until a week earlier. Eventually, Dior asked if he could see the shoes I had prepared. I readily agreed, and we went down to my cabin where I spread my models before him. He stared at them in silence for a few moments, and then turned and said suspiciously, Who told you I was bringing this work to America? I looked at him in surprise. No one told me, I said. I did not even know your name until I read it in the list of award winners. I certainly have no spies in your organisation. Besides, you just told me that nobody has seen your dresses because they were finished so late. No one has seen my shoes for the same reason. Well, he said, I don't know how it's happened, but I've got the dresses and you've got the shoes. They might have been designed in cooperation. It seemed fantastic. Both Dior and I had been working on styles we had never touched before, yet they coincided to such a remarkable degree that in the mannequin parade, my shoes fitted to his dresses to perfection. For instance, to quote only two examples, 
Dior had designed a dress lined with satin and with a new style of cutaway neck. One of my shoe styles was of satin, lined with satin, and the vamp was cut away to show the instep in precisely the same fashion as Dior's neckline. The second pair of shoes was made with two drapes only. Dior had designed a dress with two drapes. Yet, perhaps it was not so fantastic after all. I had for many years believed that fashion trend is not the exclusive prerogative of one designer, but is in the air. A sort of manifestation of the world will, if I may put it like that, with the result that two men, working 400 miles apart, unknown to each other and with widely different means of inspiration, I draw my creations from my memory while Dior prefers to find his inspiration from practical items like paintings and drawings, can arrive at similar conclusions at the same period in time. Normally, I do not institute new fashions. There are a number of dress and shoe designers who struggle to be different for the sake of being different, meaning that they want to impose a startling new fashion line upon the women of the world. My styles are usually different only within the trend of fashion. That is, I change the style sufficiently to capture the new fashion consciousness as it arises in women. Nevertheless, it often happens that I leap ahead and many times I have been successful in breaking with the current fashion trend and making the new styles immediately popular. First, with my French toe and later with the wedge heel, the opera and the halter strap, the dimple toe, the gloved arch, the sculptured heel, the invisible shoe and heels of every shape. The wedgie is my only creative revolution which has been an instantaneous and worldwide success. When I designed the French toe, it did not capture the world like the wedgie, all in a breath, as you might say. Its popularity was confined for several years to stage and screen actresses. Gradually, fashionable women became conscious of the trend and adopted it. But meanwhile, the advanced guard of fashion had tired of it. And, as I have mentioned, I made the toe a trifle sharper and called the new last the stage toe. This, too, spread from actresses to the fashion world, only to be replaced over the years by sharper and sharper toes until today, fashion has returned to the style of the early years of the century. Many shoemakers are now making much sharper toes than I will. I resist this development of the fashion trend because my system of arch fitting demands room for the toes to move, and I could design a sharp-pointed toe only at the cost of lengthening the shoe beyond its correct proportions. That is, the foot would look too long and thin for the body and would give the effect of the long tapering shoes of the medieval court jester. It has thus taken 40 years for the blunt toe to be replaced by the sharp toe, and it will be another 20 to 25 years before women will have forgotten the ugliness of the round-toed shoe and will start to demand it again or rather, until a designer decides that it's time to reverse a trend because it has outlived its usefulness. Fashion trends, however, are not universal, a fact which sometimes allows a designer to introduce a new style in an oblique or side-door manner, so to speak. That was how I made my Roman sandals popular. The Western woman was opposed to bearing her feet. To the Indian princess who made them popular, sandals were a normal fashion. So, in this case, I made the Western woman conscious of a fashion trend of the East. 
it has not died out. On the contrary, the trend has been constantly towards bearer and bearer sandals. Women have gradually come to desire their feet to look more and more naked until today the shoe designer's problem is how to fix the sandal to the foot without revealing any material on the upper part of the foot at all. I am working on that technical problem now and in a short time I hope to have it solved. If I do, you will be able to walk on a sole without an upper. This trend in sandals was paralleled many years later by the fashion for showing the toes in a dress shoe. In 1937, I worked with Manuel Girton on a shell style which showed the toes. Girton, whose knowledge of fashion trends worked abreast of mine, his judgment of the time when a style would be ripe for launching on the world was uncanny, said I was too early and we put it aside, covered by a patent taken out, as I was then still bankrupt, under another name. We introduced it after the war, when the fashion trend was ready for it. Soon there was scarcely a woman in the world who was afraid of showing at least part of her feet. Here again, the trend became more and more pronounced, until in 1947 I was able, with my invisible shoe, to combine two separate trends in one creation. It happened like this. A buyer wandered into the Palazzo Veroni one day with a desire for something new, something entirely different. A new sort of heel or something, he suggested vaguely. I took up a wedgie and began carving away at the heel with a knife, whittling its solid plumpness to a shadow, sculpting the end until it looked like the prow of a battleship. When I had finished the wedge, had also disappeared, and the sculpted heel, as the trade called it, had been born a heel which gave the illusion that the wearer was walking on air. A little later, Alfonso Caldini, the workman who had been with me longest in terms of service, he started in 1929, came back from a fishing expedition in the Arno with a fish. He had caught it, he told me, with a new type of fishing line, one made of nylon. The fish can't see it, he explained. It was the material I needed to complete an inspiration. I took a length of the watercolour thread and twisted and wound it round each sculptured heel. The result was the Invisible Shoe, a style which helped win for me the Neiman Marcus Award. It was never a good selling line, however, because it leaves the foot so naked and so poised that few women dare accept the extreme challenge to the beauty of their feet. Just as my shell fashion was ahead of its time, so too was the extremely narrow heel, the spike which is now so popular. I had to keep that on ice for many years while the heel trend gradually tapered from fat to slim. My metal heels too have waited nearly 20 years for conditions to ripen in their favour. They first made their appearance in 1954. Last year they spread and by the end of 1956 they will be the rage everywhere. My gloved arch shoe, despite a great deal of publicity since it was patented in 1950, is not yet a widespread fashion. I expect it to be the style in 1958-59. to 59. But if designers must wait for their customers to become conscious of new styles, who then determines fashion? Is it the customer? Is it the buyer, influenced by the customers who enter his shop? Or is it the designer himself? The answer is, new fashions begin in the mind of the designer. 
I have rarely been introduced to a new style by either a customer or a buyer. The sequence of events is this. I select from the many designs which present themselves to my mind, taking usually those which are obviously in harmony with the current fashion trend, but sometimes, because a creator must be allowed to create, he must not stifle all his ideas merely because the world is not yet ready for them. I have no season. Whenever I know that a buyer is coming to Florence to see me, I design a few models specially for him. When he arrives, I show him my special models, my advanced models, and many of the models I have previously designed. In every case, he goes at once to the designs I have created specially for him. There may be a thousand models to choose from, but he always selects the ten or dozen I have built for him. The reason is that I know instinctively which style will appeal to which buyer, even if I have never done business with that buyer or his store before. I cannot explain this. I can only record it as a fact. Of course, the conscious mind does operate in certain cases. Every fashion designer knows that trends are different in different countries. Therefore, the buyer from Germany or Great Britain must be attracted by styles different from those offered to the buyer from Australia or America. It goes deeper than that, however. Trends differ not only between countries and within a country, between, say, Marshall Field in Chicago and Saks Fifth Avenue in New York, but within the same city. For instance, Lord and Taylor of New York are attracted by styles different from those chosen by Saks Fifth Avenue. When the buyer has selected the styles I have invented for him, I usually draw his attention to the advanced models. The reply is interesting and amusing. He says, no, no, doubtfully, no, I don't think we can sell that line. You have so many beautiful styles, we'll leave that one, shall we? His reply indicates not only that the style does not attract him as a buyer for his particular store, but also that he cannot see the beauty in the advanced line. He is not yet abreast of the future. The sequel occurs some years later. The same buyer returns, selects my custom-made-for-his-store lines, and then murmurs thoughtfully, Didn't you have a shoe in such-and-such design some time ago? I reply, Yes, but you said to put it away because you couldn't sell it. Yes, he replies, but I had a customer in the shop the other day with a request, and it reminded me of that style. I think we may be able to do something with it. There is one buyer who is an exception to this rule. Manuel Gurdon. He and I were of the same mind on fashion. When I showed him an advance line, he would say, No, Salvatore, you are five or seven or ten or a dozen years ahead of your time with that one. But keep it up your sleeve. He could always see the beauty of the future and was ready for it.